The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. The Profile is brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. To request a free sample copy of the magazine, visit premierchristianity.com. Now today on the programme, I'm speaking with Terry Waite. Whilst working as a hostage negotiator and envoy for the Church of England in Lebanon in the late 1980s, Terry was kidnapped and held hostage for nearly five years by Hezbollah. His remarkable story is told in Taken on Trust, a bestseller which has now been reissued by Hodder and Stoughton to mark 25 years since the story was first published. Terry, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. And if I may say so, if I can just say to some of your listeners who were listening a number of years ago, uh, thank you for your support. Mm. Because I know that many listeners did mm. uh, give me their support over the years and have written to me across the years. Absolutely. And uh, I just like, it gives me a nice opportunity to say thank you for that. Oh, wonderful. Thank you for, for sharing that. It's been, of course, uh, nearly 30 years since, since these terrible events where you were taken hostage. So how does it feel now to uh, sit here and look back on that time? I mean, I imagine there were moments where you even questioned if you know, this day would come for you. Oh, certainly there were times when I never expected to leave captivity. And in fact, um, many people thought I was dead. Mm. My wife was told that I was dead because someone who'd been in Lebanon came back to this country, went to see her and said, your husband's dead. She said, how do you know? They said, oh, we've seen his grave. And she said, uh, I believe it when there's proof positive. Mm-hmm. And she refused to believe that. But it was over over three years, four years, I think, before she or anybody else got any knowledge that I was, in fact, alive. Looking back now, what's your understanding of the events that led up to that? Because I imagine now they're quite different to what you thought was going on at the time. I mean, you say yourself taken on trust. You trusted these people. If you're engaged in that sort of work, um, you have to trust people. And you have to trust people who are highly volatile. Um, And you take a chance. And when you take a chance like that... um, you place your life in many respects in the hands of other mm. people because you can't go armed and you shouldn't go armed. You can't go with backup armies or backup forces. You go and you're very vulnerable. Mm. And that's the way it has to be. This is you working as a hostage negotiator. When I was working as a yeah. hostage negotiator, actually, my way of working was always to have a face to face encounter with mm. people who'd been responsible for that and try and determine why they'd done it and try and find a way out of that. Now, on the occasion when I was taken hostage, I'd made contact with the hostage takers, and I, a couple of hostages had been released, both clergymen actually, Ben Weir and Martin Jenko, mm. Roman Catholic priest and uh, Presbyterian minister. Um, I was told that I could go and see the hostages for the first time because one was ill and about to die. 
And I remember saying at the time, if I come with you, you'll keep me. I said, no. And I went away and thought about it, and I decided to go. Now, don't think for one moment that I'm full of altruism there. Um, I think when you do things for other people, you're often consciously or unconsciously doing something for yourself as well. Mm. Uh, and my reasoning went as follows, that if I've been given, as I have, a promise of safe conduct to see someone who's about to die, and if I haven't got the courage of my convictions to go and see that person and that person dies, then I'm going to have to live with my conscience for the rest of my life. And you could argue there's a strong personal motive. So I went back and, of course, was captured. Hmm. How did your faith impact you whilst you were um, alone? You were in solitary confinement for three years. You were in captivity for nearly five years. Did your faith help you or strengthen you in any way during that time? Well, I was in solitary confinement for over four years, actually, in just the last few months right. to be with other hostages. Uh, the whole period was... I can remember the day, 1,763 <laughs> days. Yeah. That, day, that number uh, was lodged in my brain. Mm. Um, my faith, yes, was of help. Now, I, I've never believed, and I still do not believe, that anybody who professes faith is given exceptional protection mm -hmm. from the events of life. Mm -hmm. um, we live in a world which is full of suffering, and many people suffer more than others, and some people suffer greatly through absolutely no fault of their own. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a mystery in many ways, but that's how life is. Now, faith will not give you um, necessarily pro uh, protection from these ups and downs of life, but what it will give you, in my view, is an ability to cope with them, to face them. And actually to turn the experience from being negative to being something creative. That is the whole central message, if, I, if you like, of the, of the Christian faith. A faith which has a symbol of suffering mm. at the heart of it, the cross, beyond which lies resurrection. Mm. And that is a very important part of understanding of life. Mm. So I didn't believe that I was going to get any special protection, if you like. Sure. But certainly one was enabled uh, to cope with the situation and mm. um, hopefully to retain at least a degree of sanity. Yes. Uh, you said that before going in, you had, I guess, three things that you were holding to. No regrets, no self-pity, no over-sentimentality. Uh, you considered that these three things could be dangerous in your situation, I guess, to your own mental stability whilst in captivity. What was so dangerous about those three things? Well, the danger of those three things was this. Um, looking back on life, uh, all of us will be able to look back and say, oh, you know, I wish I hadn't done that. Mm. You know, something that's fallen across our path. We've done something which we ought not to have done. You know, as the prayer puts it, I've done those things we ought not to have done, so and so forth. Um, but at this stage, in this particular situation, it was pretty pointless looking back and saying regretting, mm. because that's just going to lead you to be demoralized. Accept what is. Accept the fact that that's in the past, 
uh, you've tried to deal with it as best you can. Go on. No over sentimentality meant something rather similar, really. You look back on life and you say, oh, I wish I'd been a better family man, spent more time with the children, you know, done this, that, and the mm -hmm. other. But the, the fact of the matter is, you may wish that, but you can't relive your life. Yeah. Your life has lived as it is to this point. Mm. And if you think and dwell too much on that, again, you'll be demoralized. Mm. And the third thing, uh, no self-pity. There I reminded myself of one pretty important fact that, uh, first of all, my situation was far better than the situation of many people around the world. I thought, for example, of those who'd been brought up in slavery, who'd been born in chains and who died in chains. Mm. I thought of people who are in parts of the world where there is absolutely no help or support for them whatsoever, the marginated of, this, of our society, mm. the marginated in our world. And I said, at least you still have life and you still have your mind. You can still think. So, you know, don't, uh, in that sense, uh, dwell on these matters. Otherwise, again, you'll be demoralized and don't feel sorry for yourself. And I can't say that I always kept absolutely to those things. Mm. But I did my best, and they were a help and a support. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, what other things were that help and support? I mean, it's a huge amount of time just by yourself with you were blindfolded, you were chained up, uh, you had no, 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 even, no access to even things like sunlight. What kept you going mentally? Uh, how were you able to remain strong for so long? Well... I remember saying to myself at the time I was captured, and when I realised that I was probably in for a, a long spell, and probably not even leave that place, I might die there, mm. um, I said to myself, take this as an opportunity. Now, the way I looked at it was as follows, that I'd spent my life up to that point and I'd travelled a great deal. I'd constantly travelled all over the world and worked all over the world in many different places and different parts of the world. Now all that travelling had come to an end, and I was confined in a very small room uh, with nothing. No books, no papers, no companionship, nothing. And I said, now this presents you with an, a unique opportunity to take a different type of journey, an interior journey to get to know yourself better, almost a form of self-analysis, if you like. Mm. I'd previously, when I was freeing the outer world, been told, take time out, you know, go on retreat or mm. go away. <laughs> and I'd done that and, you know, I couldn't really relax because my mind was always so full of things, mm. full of the pressures of life. And I could never really enjoy the silence and so I said, now you've got the chance to learn, mm. to learn what silence is. And so I started this inner journey. Now, the inner journey is difficult in some respects by yourself because, you know, if you're going to do analysis, it's often wise to do analysis in the company of an, an anal analyst because you run in danger of being swallowed, if you like, 
by the dark side that you see within because everybody, every human being is a composite mixture of light and dark, mm -hmm. good and evil if mm -hmm. you like. Yeah. Um, and if you are doing that by yourself and you come across as you will the dark side, you could easily fall into depression, despair and in some cases into mental difficulties. And uh, what you have to do there is recognize that when you come across that, you're simply coming across what is a composition of ordinary human beings anywhere. Mm -hmm. You're just no greater or lesser than anybody else. You're the same. And somehow you try and find harmony and balance. Mm -hmm. And that's the way I took it. And it proved to be e enormously beneficial because uh, today, I have learned very much more of how to enjoy silence. I'm still an Anglican, still a member of the Church of England, mm -hmm. but I'm also a member of the Society of Friends, mm. the Quakers, mm. who know how to constructively use silence. Mm. Um, and I appreciate it. I think sometimes our church worship uh, can be far too noisy for me now, <laughs> far <Yeah>. too active. <laughs> Maybe this is because I'm getting older, but there's nothing more creatively wholesome for me, hmm. not saying for everybody, but for me, than to be able to sit in a Quaker meeting on a Sunday morning and sit there quietly and just sit with other people. And when somebody has something to say, they will say it and you listen. And often it's worth listening to. Hmm which is more than I can say of some of the sermons I heard when I was a boy. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's talk a bit about that. Um, I'd, I'd love to know what was it that first drew you to Christianity as, as a young boy? <clears throat> I think uh, two things, really. I think the fact that I was uh, always liked music and I joined the church choir. Right. And in the church choir... Uh, unconsciously I memorized the Psalms, the hymns, the prayers, particularly the book of Common Prayer which mm. was always in use in those days. It lodged in my mind. Now unconsciously I was learning that and I didn't realize, <clears throat> I didn't realize when I got into captivity <clears throat> that there I had a great store of memory. I had prayers and colics and psalms, they were, they were inside me, mm. part of me, if you like. And that says a great deal to me about the regular use of language. Because one of the functions of language, or can be a function of language, uh, is that good language has the capacity to breathe harmony into the soul. And the prayers that I said from the Book of Common Prayer were harmonious, they were poetic if you like. I mean, for example, I've often used this uh, prayer, a collect, which is another word for prayer, lighten our darkness we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy defend us from all the perils and dangers of this night, is a prayer that has um, great meaning when you're in the dark, mm. but also it has rhythm and harmony, almost poetry if you mm. like. And I refused to engage in extempore prayer because in that situation and in that condition, I felt that if I did go and stray into extempore prayer, uh, 
I would simply finish up by pleading with God to get me out of here, which is only one aspect of prayer, you know, to ask for something. Mm. But only surely, surely that was a huge need for you at that point. I mean, that would be most Christians' initial reaction, wouldn't it, to say, God, get me out of this prison? Well, you can pray that maybe once, but then you don't go on about it. Right. You don't go on about it. You say, you know, get on with it one day at a time. Mm. Live it now. Yeah. And try and have a more balanced life mm. rather than just... In some ways, if you just get into the position of saying, oh, please get me out of it, please get me out of it, you're not really facing up to the situation you're in. Mm. You're escaping it. Uh, if you, You've got to face up. If it's an illness, for instance, if there's somebody listening to this program now who is not well and has got a terminal condition or has been described as a terminal condition, well, it may be, it may not be, but live your life now. Mm. You know, Live it as fully as possible now. Mm. There are things you can't do, as I, like I couldn't do when I was in captivity. Um, but the thing is, <laughs> if you're just dwelling on get me out of here, you're in some ways escaping the reality of the moment too, mm. if you go on about yeah. it. I, I read before you'd mentioned Jesus' words about living one day at a time and mm. how that was helpful for you in captivity. Um, I guess there would have been a temptation to, to look ahead and to wonder what was going on in the outside world, but did you just have to stay focused with your one day at a time? Well, I was incredibly curious as to what was happening in the outside world. I mean, I genuinely craved information. Mm. I mean, obviously, about my family. Mm. Was my mother still alive? You know, she was getting on, but she's still alive. Were my children all right? Um, because they were teenagers and they were going to university and so on and eventually yeah uh, what about my wife what yeah. about my friends i was desperate for the outside information i, I didn't get it for a long time and mm -hmm. still i did the tapping on the wall and got some messages then but you sort of have to discipline yourself and you have to put your family into the background so to speak and say i can't afford to think about it all the time because otherwise I'll just drive myself to distraction. Mm. It's not as though you don't care. No. It's because you just can't, there's so much you can bear, and you have to know yourself sufficiently to know how much you can bear at any given time. Mm. And if you can't, just put it to one side as best you can. Yeah. Um, there's, there's an amazing story um, about how you managed to get hold of some books whilst you're in captivity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to plead with my guard to bring me books, and they wouldn't. And one day I met a kindly guard, and uh, he said, uh, "He said I'll try and get you a book." Well, he didn't know what to get because he couldn't read English, and you couldn't be seen going into a bookshop to buy English books. No. So he had to work through cutouts. Someone went to a, a location, got a book, passed it down the line, and it came to him. So one day he came into the cell, and uh, when anyone came in, of course, I had to be blindfolded, pull a blindfold over my eyes. And he dropped a book by my side. He said, there's a book for you. I said, oh, thank goodness, after all this time. And he went out of the room. I removed the blindfold and picked it up and looked at it. And unknown to himself, he brought me great escapes. <laughs> escapes from prison camp in World War II. <laughs> totally useless. Because 
you know, I had the story of the wooden horse and Eric Williams <laughs> yeah. and uh, escaping. So whenever they came in the cell and said, uh, do you want anything in a perfunctory sort of way, yeah. I used to say, wouldn't a horse would be better useful? And later <laughs> when I'd gone off my head. But then he brought me another book, which was um, a manual of breastfeeding. <laughs> <laughs> Being the father of, uh, of twins, you know, having bottle fed one while my wife breastfed the other at night. I didn't want to read that again. <laughs> and when he bought me the ubiquitous Dr. Spock, Baby and Childcare, I realized that someone had got stuck on the Baby and Childcare shelf. Yeah. How did I get them off that when you can't communicate? Nice. So I asked for a pencil and paper. Now, I had a pencil and paper twice, once when I was facing a mock execution and on this occasion. So he brought me a pencil and paper. He said, you can have it for a couple of minutes. And looking beneath the blindfold, I drew on that picture, um, on that paper, a picture of a penguin. So if you see that on the front of a book, buy it, it'll be a good book. And I got my first penguin book uh, <laughs> a few couple of weeks later, enticingly entitled, uh, When I Walked Out One Midsummer Morning by Laurie Lee. <laughs> I, mean, I, I had read it years ago, but it was wonderful to read it again. Sure. But it, it, it taught me one thing, actually, that the importance of the symbol, mm, yeah. how uh, symbols yeah. uh, actually cross boundaries mm. that language and what have you doesn't, yeah. and how it got me my book. Mm. The other time you had the pencil and paper, as you say, you were facing at that point what you thought was, was going to be the end. And as I understand it, you'd been given a, a pencil and paper really to write your final words. Uh, what did you write? As far as I remember, I wrote that I believe this is worse this effect, that this is my final message to you all. I expressed my care and concern for them. I said that I was in good spirits. And I said, um, do not think too badly of my captors. Mm. They have, uh, you know, had their own um, experiences, negative experiences of life, um, and I, I try and understand them. Mm. Where's that effect? Yeah. I wasn't going to be bitter. I wasn't going to be pleading either. I saw no reason to plead for my life. I wanted to maintain reasonable dignity if I was going to die. I asked to say a prayer. And I said a prayer out loud. I said the Lord's Prayer out loud because I wasn't either going to be unnecessarily intimidated, mm. but at the same time, I wasn't going to be a show-off, if you like. Mm. Just say, look, this is me brazen it out, which right. is going to say what I believe to be right, mm -hmm. which was to say a prayer. And that was that. Well, what is your memory of your final, I guess your final 24 hours of finally being released? Well, you never know, you see, when you're going to be released. Uh, there were many times when they came into the cell and said, you're going, mm. and you prepared yourself mentally, yeah. and you didn't go. You were there for another, another several weeks, or oh, months, whatever. Yeah. So you believed it when it happened. When it happened. Yeah. When it happened. Yeah. But what happened next? Well, they then said, turn round, and I felt cold metal at my forehead. And 
and after a moment or two they dropped it and they said another time. When I finally came out, yes, I regarded that final coming out at Lynham as being the end of a chapter, so mm. to speak. I was signing off. And what happened, I was coming back on the plane and uh, Richard Charters, with whom I used to work at Lambeth mm. Palace, he was uh, chaplain. Now Bishop of London. Now Bishop of London. Yeah. And Richard and I were colleagues at one point. Right. Richard kindly came out to Cyprus and escorted me back from Cyprus back to London. He said, there'll be a lot of press at the airport. Mm. And my, I suggest you meet them first before meeting your family because otherwise it'll be emotionally very difficult. He was absolutely right. Right, okay. And so on the plane, I just found a bit of paper and I jotted down a few points. I suppose I had been thinking about what I might say, mm. but then I went in there and that was my signing off, saying, this is it, okay, I've done what I could, mm. wasn't, wasn't all that successful, but I did what I could. Now, here's my statement, mm. now I've got to meet my family, we get on with the rest of life. Sure. And indeed, you have done exactly that, been involved in so many different projects and starting charities. But I think a lot of people were very surprised when they heard you'd be going back to Lebanon, which you, you have done, I think, <laughs> on more than one occasion. I think particularly at the time in 2012, where you actually met with Hezbollah. Well, um, I've, I've often felt, um, I'm sure many people listening have, have wondered, what is it that ordinary people, such as uh, ourselves, can do to at least promote peace in the world? Hmm. And I felt, rather naively, if you like, and simply, that one of the things that could be done would be if people who have opposing views, mm -hmm. religious views, political views, cultural views, whatever, if they could sit down with each other, agree to put the past in the past, and try and build a new future together, mm. we would have at least the basis for a, a greater settlement. Mm. And I thought it's useless me saying that unless I'm prepared to do it myself. Wow. So I went back, and 25 years earlier, I had been at night to see uh, my alleged captors. And 25 years later, I went back at night to see them again in a different way. They were surprised to see me. And I sat opposite one of the leaders and said what I've said to you. Mm. And he actually responded, I don't know whether how accurate he was, but he said, you're a very great man for coming and saying that. Thank you. And uh, for the first time, he spoke to me as a human being wow. rather than as a functionary or as mm. a captor. Mm. And then I said to him, uh, I think there's something you could do for me. Because I want to make something creative from what has been a negative in the past. Mm. Will you get me heating oil for those refugees on the border whom I've just been to see and are in a miserable condition? He said, yes, we'll do it. Now, a very small gesture. I believe he did it. I don't have absolute proof. I believe he did it. Um, and I just feel this, that 
whilst I'm not naive enough to believe that that sort of gesture is going to bring about major change and political change on my, from, from my action, mm. if 10,000 people in Israel and 10,000 people in the occupied territories were to do that, mm. ordinary people, we begin to have the basis for a political sure. settlement. Absolutely. Well, Terry Waite, thank you so much. That's a wonderful note to end it on. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Coming up next, Moira speaks to Kim Mazel. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Radio.